Good to be here this morning. Very good. I'm glad to get the opportunity to speak and, um, in this series called Experiencing God. And today what I would like to talk about is something that I've probably shared here one, in one form or another on fruit bearing, fruit bearing and the Father's love. And uh, kind of my journey and, uh, of, of dealing with this idea of being fruitful in God's kingdom and Father's love and how that fits together. And I want to start out with uh, Philippians uh, 1, 9 through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. And then uh, Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then John 15, verse 8, which is going to be the key passage uh, for this morning. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. How do you read these verses? How we read this passage may reveal something important about the condition of our hearts. For years, I read the phrase fear and trembling and my orphan heart, and I'll talk about that in a minute, immediately thought, so God cannot be trusted. I thought that I had to, I'd been thrown back on my own resources again and again. And orphans do not have much. I thought... I have to be perfect or nearly perfect to keep from getting zapped. I don't know if that was, has been your experience in some uh, parts of your spiritual life. But what my orphan heart did not realize is that this fear and trembling comes not as a result of terror of divine power, but at the awesomeness of the grace of Christ who would give up equality with God to become like a slave and die on the cross for me and for you, and that now everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth simply cannot avoid recognizing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the fear and trembling comes from that revelation that is essentially a revelation of love. And so the Scripture says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. And how we read that is an important thing because we want to catch ourselves reading in a certain way. We want to catch ourselves reading in a way, either reading in a way that is fully assured in Father's love or reading in that orphan way so that we can identify that and say, that kind of thinking is not what I want to bring to my Scripture reading. Because if I read Scripture with that orphan heart, 
my scripture reading will not do me good. It will, it will actually create spiritual, more spiritual problems for me. So Bible, just in itself, without the right spirit, can actually be detrimental to our health. And I'm, I'm saying that as a Bible translator. I love the scripture, and I like to get it out all over the world. And I also believe that the Spirit of God is essential to actually understanding and, and having that, that Scripture as a life-giving thing in our lives. I called my daddy recently, and I told him I was going to be speaking on Father's love. And Dad gave me his blessing and encouraged me to speak openly about the failure in our relationship, failures in our relationship the failure in his relationship with his grandfather, and my failures, too, in my relationship uh, with my own son. We have a, a series of intergenerational... There's some successes and some failures, and, and we've had some breakdowns over, over the years. I don't think that I've ever felt so grateful and free to speak the hard things in my life as when Dad said, yeah, please go ahead and share. That tells me that redemption is possible. You see, my dad was abandoned in Oklahoma as a child. He left with a brother and, who treated him harshly, and he was left with more distant relatives and, and uh, passed from one to another. And at the age of 11, for all intents and purposes, he ceased to be his father's son. From the age of 11 to 16... He wandered from relative to relative, and people said that by the time he was 18, he would be in prison. Instead, he met my mother in Arkansas. And when he was 16, he returned to his home and determined to find a job in Arizona to be able to marry her. And there, at that time when he was 16, he ended up in a fist fight with my grandfather. And my grandfather left him bloodied and on the floor unconscious. We wander far from God's heart. All the while, we could have a home in Father's love. And that's equally true for my grandfather and my dad and for myself. My father married my mother at the age of 17 because he wanted to rescue her from being trafficked. She was at that time, and so that was a, that was a, a, a real rescue, a, a real change in, in our family and uh, in, in, his, in her life, and something that I'm proud of to this day about my dad. I was born to the two of them, and they were 19-year-old kids, and my father promptly joined the army and headed for the Pacific. When he returned from the army, he was... I was three years old, turning four, and I can still remember the homecoming from Hawaii. He came with two lays of uh, flowers, bright flowers, and two lays of hard candies hung around his neck, and he gave those to my sister and to me. And a few days later, we attended a carnival that came into the town, and my dad wanted to take me up on the Ferris wheel, and I was terrified. And I cried, and he, he insisted that I go, and I, I held on to him tightly. And as we went around the, the Ferris wheel, the operator 
as they always do, stopped the Ferris wheel at the very top. I was at the very top with my dad, and he just laughed and laughed while I cried, and he started to rock the, the little seat back and forth, and he just laughed. I think inside he was trying to make me tough. I, I think that's what he had in mind. Um, but I was just devastated and wondered who in the world this stranger was, what kind of a life we were going to have, uh, to the best of my four-year-old uh, ability. And uh, during that time, too, Dad, uh, a new dad, for all practical purposes, coming back into my life, saw that I was, uh, it, I had a disgusting habit that I had no control over, and so he intended to stop me, break me of that habit. And so every morning he would punish me when he saw that I had wet the bed. And he would think of different ways to punish me. Uh, at first it was spanking, and then it was rubbing my nose and face in the, in the urine until I thought I was going to die. Uh, I became terrified of my dad over time. And when I was 11 years old and realized, and it, I didn't stop that practice until that, that habit until I was 10 years old, and so when I was 11 years old and finally it stopped of its own accord, I realized I had no, uh, no possible way of changing that on my own. And I, I began to hate my father. Where does a child go when there is no one to protect him? When the person who is supposed to be his protector becomes the one who inflicts pain upon him? And this is one of the places that I have created in my own spirit over time, a kind of a, uh, a, kind of a, a castle or, or stronghold of, of uh, regressing and going into a, a, a distant place where I'm far from everyone around me, and, and I intellectualize problems to keep people at a distance, and I, I, I excelled at intellectual pursuits, and a lot of that was my way of kind of fighting back and the place where I go to feel safe. It's easy, it's still easy to, replay, to retreat to that place of self-protection where a four-year-old boy could keep himself safe. And that is often what is behind my efforts even to this day to excel, to be strong, to show others how capable I am. And yet I've discovered a deep irony in that kind of strength that when I am strong... I cannot find my father's love. But when I am weak, my father's love finds me. It's odd how we hold on and try to keep others from our deepest, our greatest wounds and our deepest needs. But if we open ourselves up to Father God, He will heal and provide what we truly need. That's what I believe. And my dad and I have long since reconciled. And we talk now and we laugh. I call him on the phone every week or so and he calls me. He's now uh, retired and he's 75 years old. And uh, just recently I was uh, celebrating Father's Day a, a week ago with him after a uh, after a family reunion, all my sisters had gotten together, one from Alaska, one from Kentucky, and one from, from here. We all got together and had a great time, and 
I gave my dad a copy of the book that I recently published, and uh, he was really excited and proud of me, and I received that as love. And we're in we're in a different place, you see, and and so so many things bind us together now that I'm a grown man, and and I've forgiven him, and we've come to a new place. But I have to confess that those formative years with my father trying to make me tough made it tough for me to relate to God as a father. There have been some sweet consolations along the way. Let me tell you a story, but first, I'm going to go get some water. Can you uh, give that to me, Aaron? Thank you. Appreciate it. So, uh, um, when my father was 25 years old, he became seriously ill with gout. And he had to have some operations on his kidneys to remove uric acid stones. And uh, I was just a young man at that time. And uh, during that time, he read a lot of books when he was recuperating from that surgery. It was pretty rough surgery. And uh, so uh, my, uh, he read a lot of books. He had all sorts of books that he had. And, and uh, people started giving him books. And my aunt, Ruby, uh, who was a great aunt, gave him a book on the anniversary of her grandfather's birthday. So that would be my great-great-grandfather. And gave him this book called uh, The Seven-Story Mountain by Tom, Thomas Merton. It's a great book. If you ever want to read it, it's about how Thomas Merton, a, a, an atheist, becomes a Christian and uh, just an amazing story. But that's not what this is about today. It's really about the book itself. So, uh, he, you know, he was a larger-than-life thinker. He was uh, left, uh, and uh, at that, you know, at that time, uh, I uh, didn't think much of it. It was there in the library. I looked at it from time to time. I looked at the dedication. I wasn't really interested in reading it because it didn't have very many, it didn't have any pictures, in fact. So, um, so but I, I knew it was there, and... Uh, Thing way went on to way, and I left home. Actually, ran away from home when I was 17 because of a conflict with my dad. Was married, went to college, and uh, uh, my wife and I now have been married 38 years. We have four children and four grandchildren. I'm so so glad we we, we were married at the age of 18, and it stuck. I'm so glad. Uh, she she continues to have lots of patience with me, and. Um, and we went on to uh, live all over the world. So we, we, my dad also went to live in other places. We lived in Arizona. We lived in Colorado, California for a while. Um, and in the process, he dispersed his books, sold them, got rid of them, lost them, whatever. And uh, we also went uh, our ways and did lots of different things. And we ended up in South America planting churches and and then the West Texas for, for a few years, uh, planting churches out there in Sweetwater, Texas. And, and, uh, but in the interim, uh, in 1997, I was at my uh, father-in-law's house in Abilene, Texas, and looking at his books, and uh, noticed the Seven Story Mountain. It looked just like the book that had been in my dad's library. And... Uh, he had picked this up uh, from some preacher who was retiring and was getting rid of his library. And <coughs> I, 
had noticed it was there, but I didn't ever look at it. One day in 1997, I picked it up and looked at it. My dad's name is Stephen, and it says, uh, Stephen Smith, uh, March 17th, 1967, on the anniversary of Grandpa Biddick's birthday to Stephen Smith, a book to add to your collections. And Stephen Smith is my dad. So some way, this book wound its way, I don't know, from Arizona or Colorado. Among all the millions of people that could have picked it up, it was my father-in-law who had it in his bookcase in 1997, 30 years after it had been given to my dad. And I was overwhelmed. Because it showed me that the links to which Father, our Father, will go to indicate to our wounded spirits that He loves us and cares for us. So, I want to say that the main thing this morning is that it's never too late for the Father's love. It's never too late for acceptance and and embrace and heartfelt words. They will always transform, no matter how much time has passed, no matter how much separation and distance has taken its toll, even if they cannot be fully acknowledged or or visibly accepted, they feed the soul in ways too deep to completely comprehend on both sides. Surprising it is how uncomfortable we really are with love. So God's fathering love is what we're talking about, but also the love that we have or the broken love we have with our own fathers. Today on Father's Day is made more complicated for a lot of us who for some reason or another were let down or abused in some way or wounded by our fathers. God's fathering love plants us and plants in us at the very foundation of our souls the hope of glory. Now glory is different from pride. It is the beaming of the father's proud face looking at his kids and our hearts are warm to see his smile Jesus said the father loves the son and shows him everything he does and that word love is the uh, essence of the relationship between father son and holy spirit that trinity that uh, uh, that Jamie talks about so eloquently and so often But the word love here is the word filet or fili, which means uh, an intense affection of friendship. It even is is the same word for to give a kiss is to fili. So there is this dance of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that, uh, that the Father is inviting us through the Son to enjoy, and it starts with this love between father and son that is absolutely certain it's a bedrock and it's the bedrock of our existence, that that relationship between father and son that we're invited into. The father will show the son greater things, great things, and you will be amazed, John 5.20. Now the father is glorified 
in our amazement. Would you say that with me? The Father is glorified in our amazement. He's glorified when we're astonished and when we wonder at Jesus. And the importance of this vital connection between the Father and the Son can be seen in 1 Corinthians 16.22 where the scripture says, Let anyone be accursed who has no love for the Lord. And that word love is again phili. It's the intense friendship and affection or that kiss, that desire to you know, throw a kiss at the Father, at the Lord, to be close to Him, to have that friendly intimacy. We all need a touch from the Savior every day to be calm in death to self, breathing in His life, receiving the love of the Father, living by the wise guidance of the Spirit. You see, when we are strong, we cannot find His love. But when we are weak... His love will find us. God, in His love, is a prodigal God. I love the idea of the the, the prodigal, that story we call the prodigal son actually is the prodigal father. Because it's the father who does the absolutely foolish and wasteful thing of giving all that inheritance to a son who, uh, in the eyes of the older brother, doesn't deserve it, right? Right? But God has great, he spends great effort and has great patience with us because he looks on us with the same love that he has for Jesus, even though we don't deserve it. And Paul said in Romans 8, 31 and 32, if God is for us, no one can stand against us. And God is with us. He even let his own son suffer for us. God gave his son for, all, for us all. So now with Jesus, God will surely give us all things. Now the word prodigal refers to an attitude that is extravagantly wasteful in its generosity. When the thought sinks into one's spirit that God, God's love for us in Jesus Christ is extravagantly wasteful rather than pinched or restricted or stingy or even efficient rather than abundant, we will begin to experience the love of God as it really is. A kind of time-release capsule, a time bomb that will go off in our spirits to bring life on the darkest and most lonely day. So I want to talk just briefly about this issue of fruitfulness. How much time do we have left? Ten minutes. Great. Huh? This is second service. Okay. (laughs) Now, come on. If If you get tired, you can just get up and walk out. It won't offend me. The issue of faithful of fruitfulness is directly related to whether we live like we have a home in the Father's love or whether we are orphans in our hearts. In, in the, in, we've been talking about uh, John 5, 8 and fruitfulness and the Father's glory. And in the previous chapter, in chapter 14, verses 8 through 20, the scripture says, I will not leave you alone like orphans. I will come back to you. 
In a very short time, the people in the world will see me, will not see me anymore, but you will see me. You will live because I live. And on that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you will know that you are in me, and I am in you. Those who really love me are the ones who not only know my commands, but obey them. My Father will love such people, and I will love them. I will make myself known to them. Now, this issue of obedience is important. John Calvin said that all right knowledge of God is born of obedience. And I think he's right. But a person with an orphan-like attitude or an orphan spirit has a lot of problems with obedience. I know. An orphan spirit is competitive and spiteful and thinks he or she has to be in control, often out to get credit and pursues the reward of self-glory. The, the person who is uh, an orphan spirit is also a survivor and will do whatever the survivor has to do to survive. See? And, and really thinks deep down inside that survival is is dependent on him or her. It's a lonely place. An orphan spirit can be only happy when he or she is certain that he or she will receive a calculable benefit from the efforts that he or she puts out. And what matters most, though, love. An orphan spirit is mostly a wasteland and a desert. But the person who has the attitude of a confident son or daughter can be humble and considerate and cooperative and joyful, often in the most difficult of circumstances. Most importantly, the spirit of adoption and sonship or daughterhood in the heart of a believer is a well-watered garden of assurance and love in the Father's presence. I have been able to see the telltale sign of the orphan spirit in my own heart reading the very passage that we're talking about. For many years, I've read and understood the words of the scripture as an orphan would. For example, John 15, 8, how do you read it? My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. It sounds like Becoming a disciple is conditioned on bearing fruit, right? Is that what it sounds like? Now when, you know, the answer there is, yeah, it probably does sound that way. It sounds that way sometimes in the translation, but it's really not that way in Greek. It sounds like that to some of our ears, but that's not the point. My own orphan spirit understood this passage in precisely the wrong way. Unfortunately, I passed that sense of spiritual orphan or homelessness on to other people sometimes. When I considered being that bearing much fruit was a condition of being a disciple, of being recognized as a disciple or received or loved as a disciple, but the opposite is really true. Being a disciple of Jesus is a condition of fruit bearing. If we take it the wrong way, we become spiritually homeless. What is worse, we may even create spiritual homelessness for others as well. When when we consider the Father's love conditioned upon our faithfulness, 
we'll feel we have to perform in order to receive love. But an orphan can never perform to his or her heart's content, can they? It's never enough, and eventually we may wander completely away from the love that is already ours, but we haven't found a home in yet. But we should consider, what is a disciple? Ask yourself, what is a disciple? Just ask it out loud. What is a disciple? Somebody have an idea? What's a disciple? It's a loaded question. It might go off if you touch it. A follower? Okay, a follower. Good. What else? A disciple. A student. Great. A learner. What does it take to be a student? How about this? Ignorance. The need of a teacher, right? Failure at performance. Why do we go to school? Why do we get trained? Because without the training, we wouldn't be able to do those wonderful things that, that the teaching and, and the relationship with the teacher enables us to do. I remember early... In our experience of Father's love, my wife and I were just new to all these things of the Spirit and thinking of a father as a loving father, and, and it was beginning to soak into us. And uh, so one day we were, I'd just gotten home from work, and, and uh, she'd been uh, taking care of the kids, and she was getting supper ready, and I came into the kitchen and gave her a big hug, and she was listening to uh, renewal music, uh, some music about the father and his love by Dennis Jernigan. Now, that's a blast from the past for some of you guys. And some people have never heard it. They don't know what I'm talking about. Sorry. But uh, beautiful music talking about father's love. And uh, she began to weep. And uh, I said, honey, what's wrong? She said, is it right to need God this much? And I, and I realized, I, I understood her question. Because I, I had felt that too. It, is it right to need God this much? Aren't we supposed to kind of you know, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and get her done? And, and in just a flash of, a, a momentary flash of brilliance, you know, and that happens very occasionally in my life, uh, I said, yes, honey, it is good. It is good to need God this much and even more. It is a good thing. Can you tell that to yourself? Can you tell it to your own heart? It is a good thing to need God. Bearing fruit is not a condition of discipleship. Rather, bearing fruit is a natural result of having one's heart trained by Jesus. It's something Jesus accomplishes in us. Fruit bearing, then, is an effect, not a condition of discipleship. And these words will flush the orphan spirit right 
up to the surface and expose it if you will let them do it. Discipleship is a condition of fruit bearing. When we learn, it shows how well Jesus trains his followers. This kind of fruitfulness gives honor and glory to God because it comes from what God has done for us. He sent his son, Jesus, who knows who shows us the fruitful way of life. It comes from Christ's love, from being trained, uh, from the training He gives us, from the power displayed in our lives. Bearing much fruit is a consequence of being fully trained by Jesus. So when I look at my life, and I see some area of fruitlessness, what do I say? Now I say, I need to get back in touch with Jesus about this thing. He will surely remedy this problem. He is such a good teacher. My father is such a good father. An orphan heart hears this verse and says, I guess I'm not even worthy to be called a disciple anymore. So I have to do more and try harder. But the spirit of a confident daughter or son reads these words and thinks, I am a learner. I'm a disciple. I'm secure in Father's love. That is why I'm with Jesus in the first place. Jesus will surely be the remedy for my problem. And this will give glory to my papa. So here is how a son or daughter would read this verse. Now listen. When you bear much fruit, you show that I have trained you well. This is what lets people see how wonderful the father is. Or the ERV that we translate in our... Bible translation, it's the easy to read version, says this, show that you are my followers by producing much fruit. This will bring honor to my father. Thank you, Lord. Now, um, I think that's it for today, but I want to ask you to stand up and to um, just to imagine with me right now, if you can, the beaming face of your, the beaming, smiling, proud face of your father, looking at you with lots and lots of love. Some of you, that's going to be hard. For some of you, that's going to be so easy because you've seen that face so many times. Now, if it's a problem for you, then I'm going to give you something easier. Imagine the beaming, loving, proud face of Jesus. You may not be there and you can you know, see your own dad beaming, but you can see Jesus beaming toward you. And the scripture encourages us and says that we are blessed. That the that the Lord's face shines on you. 
that he、uh, lifts up his countenance upon you. That's his attitude towards you because Jesus has done everything. He's he's done the performance. He's he is the one who gives us the relationship, and we can step right into that relationship in Jesus. That relationship of Father Son, where God is loving His Son, and the Son is loving His Father, and that's where God wants us to be. It's a secure love. It's not going to go away. It's not going to change. There's nothing you can do to get God to love you any more than He loves you now. So if this message is touching you and you, you you're sensing I need somehow to get back in touch with Father's love, we've got some brothers and sisters that will pray for you and we'll pray. That you will receive a greater revelation of the Father's love. If there's some other reason that you need prayer, this is the time to respond. Don't leave without getting some prayer. And if and if the if the place down places down here fill up, then ask a friend, ask a neighbor to pray with you. God's love flows through all of us in Christ. Let's sing.